This evening for our reading of scripture, we're going to begin in Luke chapter 12, Luke 12, verse 41. We'll read through verse 9 of chapter 13, Luke 12, 41. And Peter said unto him, Lord, speakest thou this parable unto us? or even to all. And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household to give them their portion of meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord when he cometh shall find so doing. Of a truth I say unto you that he will make him ruler over all that he hath. But and if that servant say in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming, and shall begin to beat the men's servants and maidens, and to eat and drink and to be drunken, the Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him, and at an hour when he is not aware and will cut him in sunder, and will appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant, which knew his Lord's will, and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not, and did not commit things worthy of stripes, shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall be much required. And to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. I am come to send fire on the earth. And what will I, if it be already kindled? But I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how am I straightened till it be accomplished? Suppose ye that I am come to give peace on earth? I tell you, nay, but rather division. For from henceforth there shall be five in one house divided, three against two and two against three. The father shall be divided against the son and the son against the father, the mother against the daughter and the daughter against the mother, the mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And he said also to the people, when ye see a cloud rise out of the west, straightway ye say, there cometh a shower. And so it is. And when ye see the south wind blow, ye say, There will be heat, and it cometh to pass. Ye hypocrites, ye can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it that ye do not discern the time? Yea, and why even of yourselves judge ye not what is right? When thou goest with thine adversary to the magistrate, as thou art in the way, give diligent that thou mayest be delivered from him, lest he hail thee to the judge, and the judge deliver to the officer, and the officer cast thee into prison. I tell thee, thou shalt not depart thence till thou hast paid the very last mite. There were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans, because they suffered such things? I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Or those eighteen upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, 
ye shall all likewise perish. He spake also this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon, and found none. Then said he unto the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and find none. Cut it down. Why encumbereth it the ground? And he answering said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also, till I shall dig about it and dung it, and if it bear fruit, well, and if not, then after that thou shalt cut it down. We read that far in God's Word, and our text is the first five verses of chapter 13, where among these verses we have this, that Jesus answering said, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans, because they suffered such things, I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Or of those eighteen upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem, I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. With a view to the administration of the Lord's Supper next week, we are required to conduct a thorough examination of ourselves. The form quoting Scripture itself begins, let a man examine himself. And if you ask about what thing are we to examine ourselves, one can give the answer, repentance. We are to examine ourselves with regard to repentance. That's clear from the form, which soon we will read. Let everyone examine his own conscience, whether he purposeth henceforth to show true thankfulness to God in his whole life and walk uprightly, and whether he hath laid aside unfeignedly all enmity, etc., etc. That's a reference to repentance. And the idea, as clearly as it can be stated and is obvious, is that we are called to examine ourselves with regard to repentance because repentance is necessary to enjoy the blessings of the Lord's Supper, necessary to enjoy the very thing pictured in the sacrament. Even more so, repentance is necessary because without it one eats and drinks unworthily and therefore is cursed. That's the very picture and sign of the Lord's Supper and examination. The preaching of repentance also is necessary. In fact, the preaching of repentance is an inseparable element of gospel preaching. Do I need to repeat that? The preaching of repentance is an inseparable element of gospel preaching. That is, gospel preaching without it is no gospel preaching alone at all. That's clear from Jesus himself. Repentance was the message of the forerunner that he himself sent. We read in Matthew 3, verse 2, his gospel was, his preaching was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But that's what Jesus himself also preached. We read in Matthew 4, verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach. Preach what? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Not only that, but that was the message he called his disciples to preach. We read that they went out and preached 
that men should repent, Mark 6, verse 12, and later on, that God commands all men everywhere to repent, Acts 17, verse 30. And as part of that gospel preaching, Jesus himself gave instruction and commanded repentance, as he does here in the text, when twice he says, except ye repent, ye shall likewise perish. Importantly, this instruction of Jesus is also followed by a parable, the parable of the fig tree. The fig tree without fruit, so that it is cut down after it is first warned. Cut down after three years when it should have given fruit. The fruit that was desired was repentance. The three years refers to the ministry of Jesus. With the instruction of the text, therefore, Jesus issues a clear and necessary warning, not only of the necessity of repentance, but that when it comes to enjoying life, there are only two options, repent or perish, so that one does not enjoy life. And the meaning of Jesus is that there is no third option. It's repent or perish, not keep sinning and live, but repent or perish. And therefore, too, this is a timely warning for us to hear in anticipation of the Lord's Supper and with regard to self-examination. We consider repent or perish. The clear warning, the necessary warning, and the gracious warning. The warning of Jesus in this passage, and make no mistake, it is a warning, is clear. And that warning is clear because it is so utterly simple. Except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Is there a child here who does not understand that warning? Clear and clear because it's simple. Now this warning came to Jesus because someone in his audience brought something to his attention. What they brought to his attention was something that had happened. There was something that had even recently happened and that they were all well aware of. Pilate, Pontius Pilate, the same Pilate, for some reason had sent his soldiers into the temple complex and ordered them to execute some of his Jewish subjects that were from Galilee. And because they were executed there, their blood mingled with the very sacrifices that were they were making at the time. This incident then reminded Jesus of another well-known disaster that had occurred that had occurred near the Pool of Siloam. There was a tower there, and that tower evidently had collapsed, crushing some 18 Jews beneath the rubble, killed them. Now Jesus brought up that incident on purpose. The reason is that his audience had supposed there was something significant about the fact that Pilate had killed some Galileans and that in the process their blood was mingled with the sacrifices to God. And they supposed, therefore, that this was a sign of God's judgment upon those Galileans. In this, of course, the Jews actually show themselves rather theologically astute, much more than the church world today, which wants nothing to do with such an analysis 
of disasters. Floods drown thousands, and earthquakes crush ten thousands, and famines starve hundreds of thousands, and wars kill millions. And the analysis of the church is God did not really do that. God wouldn't do that. This had nothing to do with God. God only loves people and only does good things to people. And at most, what we should do is all get together and pray that God take away all these judgments. Others, of course, will say it has nothing to do with God because there is no God. So that when there's an epidemic like AIDS or drugs that consume whole communities and nations, when terrorists shoot up schools, then, then certainly that's got nothing to do with God. It's not God's wrathful vengeance on a nation that engages and promotes the grossest immorality and teaches its children every vile iniquity. No, it's, it's only the result of evolutionary development or it's the result of political oppression and these are the kinds of things that man must overcome by a scientific knowledge and social justice. Jesus responds to this assumption of the Jews by asking them a question. Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all Galileans. Jesus, of course, by that question is calling into question their understanding, their analysis. Are we to understand that every person who does not repent is going to die some sort of violent accident? before old age takes them? Are we to understand that everyone who dies in a violent accident, we might say, must have been a very great sinner? And therefore, then, that those who do not repent, or do repent, rather, can be assured that no evil shall befall them, that they will be free from physical harm, even or even persecution. That's the design of his question. Now by asking that, Jesus in the first place isn't denying that these disasters are the wrathful judgment of God upon sinners. He's not denying that at all. Actually, Jesus is teaching this in an even more absolute sense than we ourselves often understand it which is why he twice adds, except ye repent, ye shall likewise perish. According to Jesus, every disaster is not an accident, but is God's judgment. The judgment of a sovereign God upon sinners, men and women, and all of them. Jesus' analysis, if there were no sin, then there would be no such disasters. Jesus demands we analyze the wrathful judgment of God upon sinful men and women and take it in a right sense. Jesus demands that we conclude that with regard to any disaster, natural, man-made, that except we repent, we shall likewise perish. Secondly, Jesus, in his question, is referring to and describing death as the destiny of every single human being who does not repent. You see, Jesus sees disasters as even more dreadful than the audience supposed them to be, that they concerned only death and then the death of certain great sinners. But Jesus sees much more in them. Jesus sees deeper into them. He sees the terrifying reality that physical death is merely the beginning of an eternal death and an eternal death in hell. That's brought out by the words he uses. Number one, sinners. Literally, 
debtors. Those upon whom the tower fell were debtors, recognizing that death itself is the wages of sin. Death is the punishment that the sinner owes to God, whom he has offended by his sin. Secondly, Jesus speaks of perishing. That adds to the whole business. Perishing isn't simply dying. Perishing is the word that refers to the eternal dying of body and soul under the wrath of God in hell. Matthew 10, 28. Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. Rather fear him which is able to destroy. And that word destroy is the very same word perish. Destroy the soul and body in hell. Meaning is this. Except ye repent, ye shall likewise be damned eternally in hell. Physical death is the least of the problems. Physical death is only the beginning of eternal perishing. Now what Jesus does not teach is number one, that every impenitent sinner shall die a violent catastrophe. Not teaching that. So that we know those who are sinners by how they die and the violence of their death. Jesus does not teach that everyone who dies a violent death is an impenitent sinner either. And Jesus doesn't teach that if we repent, we shall live to a ripe old age without fear of any kind of death by any kind of disaster. Jesus is not teaching those things. His word is very simple. His instruction very clear. For those who do not repent, Death is punishment, and that death is the beginning of eternal damnation, no matter how you die and when you die. That's his message. Except you repent. Death is God's judgment, God's punishment, and it's the beginning of eternal damnation, perishing, no matter how you die. Well, that's his warning. In the second place, we consider that that's a necessary warning for Jesus to make. That should be obvious to us. Does Jesus say anything unnecessary? But there are reasons why this warning that Jesus gives, it is so necessary for him to give. First of all, because Jesus is well aware, as is the occasion here, that members of the church are prone to draw the wrong conclusion from disasters. And that's true not only in Jesus' day, but our day. The problem was not that the Jews did not consider these disasters God's judgment upon wicked sinners. That wasn't the problem. That's usually not our problem either. The problem was that they concluded that since they had not been punished like this, they weren't sinners. At least not sinners like those sinners. That's brought out by the example that Jesus brings up next. Notice the issue that's brought to Jesus is about some disaster that fell upon Galileans. There's a reason for that. You see, Galileans were considered lesser citizens. Lesser citizens in the kingdom of God and in the covenant than the Jews in Jerusalem. And that's how they saw Jesus, too. Can any good thing come from Galilee? They're just a bunch of sinners up there. And their analysis was this, that God had executed them in such a gruesome way and during worship because they're examples of the Galileans. And so Jesus raises another example that omits Galileans altogether, which is Jews from Jerusalem. Remember those Jews in Jerusalem killed by the tower, those fine outstanding members of the royal city. And Jesus brings that out to point out that the issue isn't one sinner being a greater sinner than another, or that only those killed in disasters are sinners. They're missing the point. 
All are sinners. Jesus issues this warning also because it is intended to be a threat and not an idle threat either. Jesus is not using hyperbole. Jesus is not exaggerating here. Jesus is speaking the truth. You see, Jesus is conscious about something more than any gospel preacher, I think, can be conscious of. And that is one important aspect of his work, is he has been sent to execute God's judgment. That's even the context. When we read there were those present at that season, the idea of season of what? And the answer, season of what he has been teaching them. And what has he been teaching them? Go back. He's been teaching there is a judgment coming. That's why there's the warning to the church in verses 35 through 40 of the previous chapter to watch for the coming of the Lord. Why you have in verse 46 of that same chapter the warning that he will be the Lord. There's a Lord and servants must give an account to him and warns about what happens to unfaithful servants. He's going to cut them in pieces and deport, appoint them their portion with the unbelievers. And then in verse 49, he warns that he comes to send fire on the earth. Not only that, but Jesus' warning is necessary because his command to repent or perish is an inseparable, integral part of the preaching of the gospel. And here it's worthy of noting his gospel. Not only the gospel concerning him, but the very gospel preached by him. In the text, clearly demonstrates that. Does anybody want to argue that Jesus preached nothing but the gospel? And Jesus shows here what the gospel is. It's not all positive comfort and sweetness and light and joy, but with it comes the call to repent and the warning that goes along with it. We're prone to forget that. And that is why we must admit that such warnings are often sadly missing from much of what goes as gospel preaching today. There are many, oh, so many, not just on the left, but on the right, that say there's no place for this, no place for such a warning, no concern. No concern about such a warning in the first place because, well, much of the church knows only one attribute, maybe two, with regard to God, and that is His grace and love. That's all He is, is grace and love. And then not even have an understanding of grace because they don't understand grace from what and why one needs grace. That's not in their mind. Is anything else about God? Namely, that He is a righteous God, a God of wrath, a God of justice, and a holy God. Know nothing about that God. But then there's those who oppose such preaching in the name of orthodoxy and in defense of the sovereign grace of God who do so in the name of an unconditional covenant or salvation by the pure grace of God. So there must be no place for repentance. Well, at least not in the congregation. Often there will be shouts of repentance and calls to repentance to everyone else, but not themselves. The charge is that such calls promote works righteousness. Say it implies that our repentance then is a condition to salvation or eternal life. Or if it's preached, then let it be preached only on the mission field to those heathens. It's too horizontal, they say. It smacks of what man must do. Preach only what God must do and does. You see? Nothing true there. Nothing at all. 
And such people know nothing about their own confessions. Is it integral to the preaching of the gospel? Inseparable? Yes, says the canons head 2, article 5. The promise of the gospel is that whosoever believeth in Christ crucified shall not perish but have everlasting life. This promise, together with the command to repent and believe, ought to, that is, must be declared and published to all. Or do not know the canons head 5, article 14. And as it hath pleased God by the preaching of the gospel to begin this work of grace in us, so he preserves, continues, and perfects it by the hearing and reading of his word, by meditation thereof, and by the exhortations and threatenings and promises thereof, as well as by the use of the sacrament. You see, where this attitude to which the church could be so prone, and regardless now of the reason, amazing, amazing that in the church of Christ, individuals on the left, the liberals so-called, and those on the right, the conservatives so-called, despise the preaching of repentance, or won't have it. And the result is that whole churches and individuals become complacent with no deep-seated sense of their own need of repentance. Basically, end up with the same attitude as Jesus' audience. They look out over the whole church world. They look out over the kingdom of the Jews or the kingdom of the Christians, and they say, my how bad all these people are in the church. And look how God judges them. Look what God's doing to this church and that denomination and these people over there and those over there. Look at God's judgment and never ever take a deep, hard look at themselves. Why? Same attitude as Jesus' audience. Those people over there are being judged and therefore, they're the sinners, not me, not us. And that's why this warning needs to be preached. This warning must be preached, regardless of whether one is in a true church or in among the heathens. It must be preached because there may be members in the congregation outwardly who inwardly are unconverted, who inwardly are unbelieving, and they must hear this warning. Such individuals in this congregation must hear this warning so that they have no illusion whatsoever that simply because they have some sort of natural connection to the church and they show up in church frequently that everything is fine and there's no need to repent. This warning must be preached because there may be those who, although even they are elect children of God, have fallen deeply into some sin and become so accustomed to it and love that sin so dearly that only a clear, sharp, simple warning like this one will move them and stir them to repentance. They too need to hear, except ye repent of that sin, ye shall likewise perish. And the application of the parable of the fig tree makes all this plain. That parable of the fig tree isn't about the mission field. It's not about the unconverted. It's about the church, the covenant nation of Israel, who were there for three years under the preaching of Jesus, Jesus himself, and were like that fig tree without the fruit of repentance, living in sin, hard-hearted, not keeping his commandments, not turning to God with all their heart, and looking at everyone else and pointing to them as sinners. 
They did not repent. And just like the parable of the fig tree, they will be cut to the ground. They will be a nation that is destroyed. And what Pilate did to those Galileans, those few Galileans in the temple, is going to be repeated by the Romans to the hundreds of thousands who are going to be killed and slain and ripped up and their blood is going to flow through the streets of Jerusalem because they heard this word and rejected it. Keep that in mind. And they can't say Jesus didn't warn them. We must all repent. It doesn't matter if you repented yesterday. It doesn't matter if you repented last hour. We are sinners. Sin flows out of us like a fountain, continually. Never is there a time when we may turn a deaf ear to this word of Jesus Christ. We must repent, repent daily. Repent just not over there or this one time. It's not something you do once, once in a lifetime. Repentance is the beginning of conversion. And it repeats itself over and over and over and over. You see, that's why it's necessary. Because even there we begin to imagine, well, I repented. No need to do it again. For this reason, this clear and this necessary warning is also a gracious warning. It's gracious exactly because this sharp warning is itself the gospel. It's a part of the gospel. It comes in the interests of the gospel. It's a warning that God Himself brings to His own people through His own servant, Jesus Christ. You see, it has to be that because repentance is the spiritual activity of a sinful man and a sinful woman. The sinful man or woman who alone, by the grace of God, change their heart and their mind about sin. That's what repentance is. I can really think of no greater definition than those I put in the bulletin. And you will notice that the definition of repentance by John Calvin 500 years ago is the exact same definition of our father, Herman Hooksma, a long time ago too. What is repentance? John Calvin. It is dissatisfaction with and a hatred of sin and a love of righteousness. That's what it is. A dissatisfaction and hatred of sin and a love for righteousness. Proceeding, he says, from the fear of God. And then he says it leads to something. It goes from there and it leads to something, which leads to self-denial and mortification of the flesh, so that we give ourselves up to the guidance of the Spirit of God and frame all the actions of our life to the obedience of the dying will. But essentially it's something that goes on in the heart of mind. Herman Uxma, repentance is a state of mind, something that occurs in the mind. A turning, he says, of the mind from the love of sin and unrighteousness unto the love of righteousness. So that the mind, the mind turns. It turns from loving sin to loving righteousness. It's that simple. And then he speaks about the grace of it all. To bring to repentance, notice, you need to be brought to repentance. No one repents unless they're brought to repentance. Who brings repentance? That is, who works repentance? Whose work is repentance, answers God. To bring repentance is always the work of the grace of God. And he explains how. Very clearly. The rain of the Word. The rain of the Word falls upon the reprobate as well as upon the elect. In the elect, God implants the seed of regeneration, and when the wane of the gospel falls upon the regenerated heart, the fruit brought forth is repentance. 
And none of that changes the reality that Jesus calls us to repent. You see, that change of mind that occurs is really due only to one reality, God Himself. It's about God and worked by God. What is repentance, really, essentially? It's a change of mind with regard to God. You see, only when sin is considered in the light of God, in the light of God's holiness, in the light of God's justice, will there be any change of thinking towards sin. There may be all kinds of reasons that people change their attitudes towards sin. There may be people that change their attitude towards sin because of the consequences. They don't like the consequence of sin for themselves or for their family or their property. Sin often brings poverty. Man doesn't like poverty. Sin brings loss of jobs. Man doesn't like that. So he sorrows over it from a certain viewpoint. May even have shame over sin. But that's not repentance. Repentance is to be convicted in one's mind that sin is against God and therefore sinful, wrong. You see, if the change in the mind is not due to the heart being broken and contrite because God has been offended by your actions, that's not repentance. Also, with regard to God, the reason why there is that, the explanation of it is that unless one first changes their mind about sin, what they know about sin, there will be no change in actions, in deeds. We often refer to repentance sometimes as a change in deed, but if you look carefully, Scripture always refers to that by other names, even calls it proof of repentance. Repentance fundamentally, in and of itself, is in the mind. Might even say in the heart. Why is that? Because the mind, or the heart, is the center of all one's beings, and all one's actions, and all one's activities. And that must be turned first. There's another explanation, too. And that is... It is impossible to turn to God. It is impossible to know God and turn to God unless one turns from sin. It's simply impossible. God is over here. Sin is over there. How can I turn to God unless I turn from sin? Now, without even turning the body, just simply think of the mind. The mind does not turn and cannot turn to God unless it turns from something else. It's repentance. And we must see the teaching of the Lord is that repentance is necessary. That's why it must be grace. It's the way of salvation. It's the way of the Lord's Supper. It's the way to the Lord's Supper. Could nothing be plainer? And not now because repentance is some work that we do that fulfills some sort of condition that God looks at and says, good boy, now you may enter and partake of the Lord's Supper. That's not why. But let there be no one here who thinks that because it becomes before that it's not necessary. Let there be no mistake that unless you repent, You shall not eat and drink worthily. That's how necessary it is. When we do an examination, if we find there's no repentance, there's only condemnation at the Lord's Supper. Oh, you may have some bread and wine, but it will condemn you. Is that sharp enough? Do we understand that enough? I could go longer into explaining why that is, but it should be obvious Because the Lord's Supper is the sign and the symbol of the forgiveness of sins in our Lord Jesus Christ. And how in the world do you receive that and can you receive that if you have no sin? Which is what it means to be not repentant. It's to come to the Lord's table and partake for every other reason, but I'm a sinner who needs forgiveness in Jesus Christ. I've come to the realization that unless I repent, except I repent, I perish. 
No, it can't be that repentance is some work that we do that we must fulfill, and that when we fulfill that, God then gives us the Lord's Supper and gives us that because we fulfilled that condition. No, no, that can't be. Repentance, by the way, like faith, repentance like faith to which it belongs is the gift of Christ. Christ grants repentance. God works repentance. That's the Scriptures too. Nevertheless, it doesn't prevent Christ from saying, except you repent, you shall likewise perish. That's why we pray. That's why we pray even with some God, work, repentance. Why do we do that? If repentance is our work. Repentance. We do that because repentance is God's work. And it's God's work such that in fact we repent and turn. That's why we so urgently need to preach repentance because Christ uses those warnings to bring us to Him, to bring us to the Lord's table. In spite of all the supposed honor paid to the doctrine of grace by those who oppose warnings in the preaching, especially warnings of repentance, they really dishonor the grace of God. They overlook the whole fact that God's great work of grace is to work repentance and work it through the very means of preaching repent. It's the way of forgiveness. Even the children can see this. Even the children know this. Everyone knows this. Why is this denied? How in the world, how in the world will you look for forgiveness and seek forgiveness and pray for forgiveness. Why in the world would you come to the Lord's Supper if there was no need? And repentance is recognizing that need. That's what it is. That's essentially all it is. It is the sinner, by God's grace, through faith, saying and acknowledging, I am a sinner. And there's no hope in me. There's no salvation in me. There's no way of life in me. Only perishing and death. That's what Jesus is preaching here. And therefore, this evening, let us hear that warning. Let us repent. Whether that be repent as a congregation, perhaps from all our casual attitudes towards sin, Repent of all of our self-righteousness, all of our finger-pointing at everyone else and all their sins and all their faults and all their weakness, but instead rather point right at myself and say, I am the sinner. Repent as perhaps one unconverted, one who has been under the control of sin in its bondage, so clearly that others can see it. Under the control, therefore, under the bondage, that is, under the sin itself, not therefore in the control as a servant of Jesus Christ. Repent. Turn from that. Turn from that sin as a child of God, as His own, recognizing our sin and sinfulness. Repent. Hearing the warning, except ye repent, ye shall perish. Remember, too, that in that warning, as always, there's an implied promise. And the promise is very simple. Everyone and anyone, doesn't matter if they're a Galilean, who in the eyes of the Jews of Jerusalem was a nobody. Doesn't matter if they were perhaps an adulterous Jew, like the one brought to Jesus whom they were about ready to stone. Does it matter if one is a Gentile or where they're from? The word of Jesus is that all who repent shall not perish at all. Oh, they may die. Oh, they may die, perhaps even a horrible death, may, may die even at the hands of a Pontius Pilate persecuted. 
their blood mingled while they worship for their worship of God, but they shall not perish. Oh no, they shall live. Let us, O Lord, in repentance, beloved, come to the table of the Lord next week and examine ourselves this week with regard to repentance. Amen. Let's turn now to the form and read the section on self-examination. Of course, the form, the last part of the quotation in 1 Corinthians 11 begins, let a man examine himself. And so we have the true examination. We'll read those three parts. Verse, page 91. The true examination of ourselves consists of these three parts. First, that everyone consider by himself his sins and the curse due to him for them, to the end that he may abhor and humble himself before God, considering that the wrath of God against sin is so great that rather than it should go unpunished, he hath punished the same in his beloved Son, Jesus Christ, with the bitter and shameful death of the cross. Secondly, that everyone examine his own heart, whether he doth believe this faithful promise of God that all his sins are forgiven him only for the sake of the passion and death of Jesus Christ and that the perfect righteousness of Christ is imputed and freely given him as his own, yea, so perfectly as if he had satisfied in his own person for all his sins and fulfill all righteousness. And thirdly, that everyone examine his own conscience whether he purposeth henceforth to show true thankfulness to God in his whole life and to walk uprightly before him, as also whether he hath laid aside unfeignedly all enmity, hatred, and envy, and doth firmly resolve henceforth to walk in true love and peace with his neighbor. And then this, all those then who are thus disposed God will certainly receive in mercy and count them worthy partakers of the table of his Son, Jesus Christ. On the contrary, those who do not feel this testimony in their hearts, that is, those who do not repent, eat and drink judgment to themselves. We read that far. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, we pray for thy blessing upon us. We pray for thy blessing upon us this week as we conduct a rigorous and thorough examination of ourselves. We pray that this may not be done hypocritically or self-righteously, and that it be done, O Lord, to the glory and honor of thy name. And we pray to thee, O Lord, for we ourselves are unable. We have no strength or desire to so examine ourselves. So may the Spirit dwell within us and examine us and bring to mind our sin and iniquity and bring us to our Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness, believing in his word as we have read. In Jesus' name, amen.